The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. And today we begin the 22nd chapter in this comprehensive study that we've had in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we come to one of Jesus' most compelling parables. Now, many of the parables that Jesus gave were hard to understand. In fact, uh, Jesus spoke parables much of the time to obscure the truth from those that were wicked unbelievers. But this parable is a much different one because it was written or given, I should say, for the same unbelievers, and it's very clear in its implications. So we don't really have to dig very deeply to find out what this parable means. And yet I say that it's compelling because what it does is to set forth a deep dichotomy that exists between those who receive Christ as Savior, their fate or where they're going to go after they die, as opposed to those who do not believe in Jesus as their Savior. Now, those who do believe have God to thank for a gracious invitation that he has given them to come to him in salvation. And those who do not believe have only themselves to thank for their rejection and what happens because of that rejection. I'd like you to look at this parable in Matthew chapter 22, and we are going to need to stand one more time as we read God's Word. We, uh, someone asked me uh, some time ago, where, where, why do we stand when we read God's Word? It actually goes back to the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we take it from there where the people stood up as they heard God's word being read. So let's look at this in chapter 22, beginning in verse number 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them, again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come to the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was very wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Father, thank you for your word. 
We just ask you, Lord, that you'd open up this passage to us today and help us that we might have better understanding of what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Back in November, I received this invitation in the mail, which is an invitation to the wedding of Nick Graves to his fiancée, Ashley Roan. Many of you probably received one of these as well. Uh, Nick, I think, is a a fine young man and one who is a very great credit to our church. He was raised in this church, and then he decided that he was going to dedicate himself to the Lord, and so now he's serving the Lord in another church in Pennsylvania. But this is an invitation that I wish that I could have accepted uh, because of the time and the distance and the money, that was impossible for us to do. But I really do wish that I could have gone to this particular wedding. Now, there are many of us that receive different invitations like this, uh, whether it's to a wedding or a graduation, a birthday party, or uh, some other event. And we very carefully sift through these different invitations that we get uh, because we just can't accept them all. And so we try to find out, well, which ones are possible for me and which ones are not, and the ones that are, those are the invitations that we decide to accept. But as we look at the invitation that we're going to talk about this morning, this is not one of those invitations that you can just casually look at and then disregard. Uh, The invitation that we have here in this passage has some very important consequences to it. In fact, they are the most important consequences because they deal with eternal things. It has to do with heaven and hell, about where you're going to spend eternity after you leave this life. So I, I think you could easily understand that we're talking here about a very extremely important invitation. Now, let's begin there today by examining First of all, the gracious invitation. Uh, Jesus began by speaking of an invitation that a king sent out for the wedding of his son. Now, as I said at the beginning, you don't have to dig very deeply to find the parallels in this story because Jesus begins by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And so when he talks about this king, obviously he means that this king represents God. And the son in the story represents him. Because many times Jesus said that he was the son of God. So a gracious invitation is given for people to come and to join in the festivities of a marriage feast that the king was giving for his son who was about to be married. Now, as much as I love Nick Graves and I respect him and I did want to go to his wedding, I didn't regard his invitation like I would if I received one from a king. I mean, after all, how many people are able to go to the wedding of a king's son and be invited by a king? Well, this is the type of invitation that this is. And I can't imagine what going to a wedding like this must have been like. Now, a few years ago, uh, not long ago, Prince William in England was married to Kate Middleton, and uh, they had a royal wedding. And people of our country, even though we don't have a king that rules over us, people of our country are just fascinated with those kinds of things. There are millions of people who watch this royal wedding on television. I mean, we, we just are captured by this kind of an event. 
Well, here is a royal king, a man who is royalty, wants to honor his son, and so he sends out an invitation. And anyone who is privileged to be invited to a, uh, the son's offer, the son's wedding, would have to consider that to be a gracious offer. I mean, after all, how many of us really do have the opportunity to dine with the king? Well, the invitation that's given here is actually a parallel to the offer of the gospel to lost sinners. It's an invitation that God has extended for us to enter into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's an invitation that is based upon the character of the one who gives it. And so it's not one that we can just callously disregard. It is a very compelling offer. It's one that can't be mulled over and then just tossed into the trash can. The one who receives this offer from the king cannot refuse it with impunity. And do you understand this, that the refusal to accept the invitation of the king is an insult to him? It's a great dishonor to him. There's a feast that's given for his son, and it's his desire. And here we're talking about God's desire. It is God's desire that Jesus Christ should be honored. It's his desire that the great sacrifice that Christ has made for our sins would have the utmost or capture the utmost of our attention and so that we would be willing to receive the gracious offer that the king extends to us, eagerly accepting that offer. And so he asks us to come to him and he requires nothing from us, uh, nothing but the willingness to honor Jesus Christ by believing him, by receiving the gift of eternal life that he offers through the sacrifice that he made on the cross of Calvary. Now, the king has great expectations for this offer. He offers it sincerely. He offers it beyond reasonably. He offers it to us freely. And he expects that his subjects will attend. Now, this is the highest of all insults to receive or to reject this invitation. Now, we need to understand whose invitation it is that we reject. He is the master, and he is the Lord of the universe. And he said, I want you to respect, and I want you to honor my son. And that's the way that everyone should understand the preaching of the gospel. The refusal of the gospel is a refusal to have the creator, the Lord of heaven and earth, to rule over you. No one can honor God unless he honors his son, Jesus Christ. Now that brings me to our second observation today, and that's the blasphemous rejection. The invitations in this story, uh, these are sent out, and that had been done previously. It was the custom in those days to make people aware long before an event was to happen that they had actually been invited to, what this, to, to this particular event. And so when the time came for the king to send out his servants and to tell the invitees that now the wedding has come, the time has come, you need to make your preparations now, they were already well aware that they had been invited to this wedding. It was an invitation that had been sent out long ago. Now notice the reaction of the people. The king sent out his servants, and in verse number 3, Jesus said, he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. 
But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. So all the preparations had been made. The oxen had been butchered. The tri-tip was prepared. And all things were in order. And now it's time to come. But the scripture says they made light of the invitation. They went about their business. One of them went back to his farm. Another went back to his merchandise or went to keeping his shop. They disregarded the invitation when it was sent. But they went even further than that. They took the servants of the king that was sent to tell them about the wedding. They took those servants and treated them roughly and they killed them. And surely that brings back to our memory the the previous parables that Jesus had spoken. What we actually have here is a trilogy of parables that are spoken in chapter 21 and 22 that all have to do with the rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to make two applications of this rejection this morning. And these two applications will take in everybody that's in our congregation today. The first one is the rejection of the Jews of the kingdom of God. The rejection of the kingdom by the Jews. Now, those previous parables that I spoke of in chapter 21 speak of Israel's rejection of Christ as the Messiah, as the king who would sit upon the throne of David. And in that first parable, Jesus told the story of two sons. One of them refused to go into the vineyard, into the field to work when his father told him to go. But later he went. And then there was another son, a second son, that said, I will go to work in your vineyard. And remember, that vineyard represents the kingdom of God or the sphere of where God works in the world. And he said, I will go and work in your vineyard, but he didn't go. And Jesus used that parable to show that the one who said he would go, but he didn't go, was actually in rejection of the authority of his father. Then Jesus told a second parable. And this one was about a householder who planted a vineyard. And again, we're talking about God, and we're talking about his sphere of work in the world. So he planted a vineyard, and he lent out his property to tenant farmers, to sharecroppers, and he let them raise the crops. He went to another place, to a far country. They raised the crops, and he expected that he would be able to send his servants back to collect the rent off the property. But when those servants came, they were treated terribly. They were killed. Last of all, the king sent his own son, and they also killed his son. And Jesus used that parable to show the rejection of the righteousness of Jesus Christ by the Jewish people. Well, now we come to a third parable, and it's also a parable about rejection. And this time, it's the rejection of the gospel. It's the gospel that is the way of peace, the gospel that is the way to eternal life. It's the invitation to come to the Son to receive eternal life in the kingdom of God. And that invitation was first offered to the Jewish people. It was an invitation that went all the way back to the time of Abraham, when God said to Abraham, I will make You are father of many nations, and all the world will be blessed through your descendants. And so it's a long-standing invitation that God gives. Now, the promise had been repeated many times throughout the Scriptures, 
But instead of accepting the promise that God gave of the Messiah that was to come, the, the leaders kept rejecting the prophets and they kept killing him and they refused to come. They were there. Prophets were there to tell them the consequences of their behavior and yet they rejected the message. And then finally the time came for the Messiah to come. And John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all, John the Baptist was sent to call the people to the wedding feast, to call the people to the ministry of Jesus Christ that the Messiah had come into the world. But what did they do to John? They cut off his head. They killed the messenger who said, now it's time for you to get right with God. Now he had preached the gospel of repentance. He said, it's time for you to repent of your sins, turn back to God. But instead, they took John and they killed him. And then when the Messiah came, they, the Jews convinced the Romans to hang him on the cross. So they refused the invitation. They spurned the king and killed his servants. And in just a few hours from this time, they would kill Jesus. But you know, that wasn't the end of things. Of course, we know that Jesus went into the grave. He was resurrected. And then after he came out of the grave, his disciples were empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and preach the gospel to other people. And when they did that, they went to the Jewish people first. They went to them first and they tried to get them again to repent of the sin of sacrificing Christ, killing him on the cross. They tried to get them to repent of that sin and turn to God, but they still wouldn't. They would not turn their hearts in faith to him. And so what happened to them? These apostles that were sent, they were also persecuted. Well, there was a great revival in Jerusalem. Thousands of Jews were converted. But it wasn't long before that enthusiasm died out. And then there were men like Saul. Saul who hunted Christians down and killed them. And do you remember that after Saul became the Apostle Paul? That his greatest desire, he said, was to see his own countrymen saved. And so Paul spoke to the Jews and tried to get them to turn back to God. And he went throughout all the Roman Empire preaching the gospel. And it was always his custom to go and speak to the Jews first. He went into the synagogues and he preached the gospel there first because they, the Jews, were a ready-made audience for the gospel of Christ. But the reaction was the same. At first, the Jews were indifferent to it. Then they became hostile to it. And then at Lystra, they stoned Paul and left him for dead. It was those kinds of incidents that caused Paul to sternly warn them about their rejection. And it took courage for him to keep on preaching the gospel to people that so hated it, turned against it, and persecuted him. So in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas confronted Jewish leaders in Antioch of Pisidia. And this is what transpired. Then Paul, this is Acts 13, then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light to the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for the salvation unto the ends of the earth. And so the rejection of the Jews had been set, they would not believe the gospel. They rejected the invitation. And still today, 
the Jewish people are indifferent towards Jesus Christ. Still today, they remain some of the hardest people to reach with the gospel. Now, I'm telling you something here, that this should be a wake-up call to anyone who consistently hears the gospel of Christ preached and yet rejects the message that's given. There can come a time when God will turn from you. There will be a time that God's patience will end with you. And did you know that what God can do is withdraw the offer of the gospel to people and no longer ply the impenitent heart? That can actually happen to the one who is stubborn and says, I will not follow the Lord. I will not trust Christ as Savior. And that fault of unbelief is entirely their own. Now look at the reaction, the king's reaction to their refusal. Verse 7 says, But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now God was patient with them. He sent them prophet after prophet. For years he had prepared them for the coming of the Christ, but they wouldn't listen. And that rejection was obstinate. It was deliberate. And so what God did was to take his vengeance on them. Now, as the prophets of old had said, armies will come and they will sweep down upon you and they will take you into captivity. And here in this passage, we see that Jesus renews that threat of chastisement. Finally, the king did send his armies to destroy them. And we, w- we would have to say, here is just an obvious reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Now, he said that God, Jesus said, God will send his armies. Now, that's a very peculiar statement because the army that destroyed Jerusalem was the Roman army. Was that God's army? Well, yes, it was in this sense that God can even use wicked and evil men to accomplish his purposes. And in this case, it was the Roman army that brought chastisement upon Israel. And you go back into the Old Testament and you find that it was the Assyrians and it was the Babylonians that God used them to chastise Israel. And these were two nations that didn't even know at the time that God was using them. These are two nations that totally rejected God and yet they were used as an instrument in the hand of God to afflict his own people. And then when God was through with those wicked men, he turned on them and destroyed them. It reminds us of what the psalmist says in Psalm 2. It says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. See, it doesn't matter what governments do. It doesn't matter how powerful a nation might be that turns against God. God is always sovereign. God's always in control of all people that are in the world. And so this is Jesus' message to Israel. God will destroy you because you have refused his gracious invitation. Now let's look at a second application of it. And the first is the Jewish rejection of the kingdom, but the second here is the rejection of the gospel by many. And this is where it takes in not just Jews, but all people that hear the message and receive it. 
Now today, Berean Baptist Church stands as a beacon for the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Every Sunday from this pulpit, we give this gracious invitation. We repeat the invitation that God says you can come to me and have life. Now, I'm not talking about an invitation that we give at the end of the service, not a song that we sing, but I'm speaking of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he is lifted up and he is glorified, and the message of salvation is given to you through the preaching of God's word. And so many other churches will do the same as we do. There are still some that preach the gospel to lost sinners, although there are many more that don't care to tell people about the invitation that God has extended. But we do that here. We still call sinners to come to Christ. But what do most people do when they hear the message? They turn from it. They don't want to hear it. They go back to what they're doing. They go about their business. Some are even hostile to the invitation. Some will slam doors in your face when you try to give it to them. In other parts of the world, they kill missionaries for preaching the gospel of Christ. But the invitation is given, the gospel is preached, and it is refused. The king of heaven and earth is ignored, and he wants his son to be glorified, but people will not believe. And did you know that sometimes their rejection doesn't seem like rejection to them? Instead, they'll say, well, I have my own religion. I have my own way to get to God. I've told you about a lady that I was witnessing to one day and, and I was standing at the door speaking to her and I started to tell her about Christ and she just said to me, well, I am a very spiritual person. And what she was saying to me is, I have my own way to get to God. And there are people who say, oh, well, the Muslims will get there and the, and the Buddhists will get there and the Hindus will get there and the Mormons will get there because all of us are headed for the same place, aren't we? And so they say, I'll get there because I'm not really all that bad. I deserve to be in heaven. And do you understand that all of those are blasphemous statements? And they are because they ignore the invitation of the king. And each time that someone turns away from Jesus Christ as the way to get to heaven, he is trampling upon the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross. And you can't do that. You can't honor God without honoring the Son. You can't come and be in his kingdom and go to heaven without the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so those that do not honor the Son do not honor God. And folks, that is really the whole problem. This is the problem that Jesus is addressing right here in this, in this particular text. Here we have a package deal. That in order to receive God and to have his blessings, to have his kingdom, you must come through Jesus Christ. That's because Jesus is divinity. He's divine. If he is not divine, we have no savior. We have no redemption. And what will happen to you if you reject the invitation? Jesus is clear. God will send his armies to destroy you. Well, you say, well, what army? What army is going to come and destroy me? Well, let's take a look. Turn over to the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew. And here we see a, another chapter that's filled with parables. And we uh, went through this chapter some months ago. But in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to these people again, uh, previous to this. And in verse number 41, Matthew 13, 41, he says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. Now there's the army. 
And they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So he says that angelic armies will come to destroy the wicked from the earth. And do you know that all of this information is to tell you how serious it is to reject the invitation so graciously offered by God? To reject it is to dishonor God by dishonoring the sacrifice of his son. Well, let's go a little bit further. There's a wedding and there is an invitation, but as yet there are no guests. Verse number 8 says that those that were bidden to come to the wedding were not worthy. But God's not in despair about that because he intends that there will be many guests. He intends that there will be some who will come. Now thirdly, we want to look at the glorious celebration. Now in verse 9 it says, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now there are many who refuse the gospel invitation. In fact, most of them do. But God knows that. And God didn't send his son to die in vain. Did you know that most people believe that Christ came and he died And he left this open invitation that really doesn't ensure the salvation of anyone. And it may surprise you, but that is the belief of most evangelicals. They believe that salvation is in the hands of the sinner alone, which means that it actually could happen that no one would ever receive the invitation, that no one would come to Christ. And then if that happened, Christ would die in vain. But verse number 14 uh, shows the incredible mistaken nature of that belief. He says, some are chosen and they will believe. Now the command for the king, from the king, is for his servants to go into the highways and compel people to come. Now surely that that is a reference, that is a, a reference to the call or the invitation to the Gentiles to come to Christ. Now as Paul said to the Jews, you won't believe, and so now we turn to the Gentiles. The highways that he's speaking of here are the regions that are beyond Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem here refers to the stronghold of this Jewish unbelief. But he says to go into the highways. And the highways are the places where the outcasts are found. These are the people that the Jews thought were beneath them. Now, the Jews were self-righteous and they thought that the Gentiles were totally unrighteous. And they were half right about that. They were half right because... All are unrighteous, Jews included, with the Gentiles, all are unrighteous. But the king said, I will have guests. And so he called another people. And this is what Jesus said would happen in John 10. He said, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also must I bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And so these others are invited, and they will come. And these are actually people that expected no invitation. Because the Gentiles, going back into the Old Testament, you'll find that God never had very much dealing with Gentiles. God never did much work among Gentile people. And so they're not expecting to have an invitation. But now God invites them to the feast. 
And what a feast it was. I mean, typically in those days, a a wedding feast would last for about a week, or the feast of a king would last much longer because of his wealth. And so here are people that are bidden to come, and they don't normally have the opportunity to enjoy such a sumptuous meal, and especially they don't have the opportunity to dine with a powerful king. But here they are. And the feast is a time of fullness. It's a time of happiness and a time of blessing. And that's what we have in the salvation of God. It's fullness because salvation touches every part of the person. Salvation changes the mind. It changes the will. It changes dispositions. It it affects all the relationships that we have. It gives us a completely different worldview. And that's why when you meet Christians that are living in the Lord, they're not in despair about death. They're not thinking about how terrible the economy is and what are we going to do about where are we going to get our money and all those things. We're not worried about who sits in the White House, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. That's not really bothering us. Christians aren't really too concerned about those things. We're not shaken by tornadoes and earthquakes and typhoons. I mean, much like we saw last week with the Filipino church that we took the offering for that was destroyed in the typhoon in the Philippines, we're not so worried about what happens because of those kinds of things because what do Christians do? Just like those people did, they rise up and they build. And that's because our hope is not anchored in this life. Our hope is anchored in heaven. That's where we look. And so we don't worry about everything that happens around here. We have an anchor that's sure and steadfast for the soul, and there's nothing that can destroy that hope. And so this is the feast that God offers us. It's salvation that lasts forever. It starts the moment that you're saved, and it goes on for the rest of eternity. When you hit the grave, that salvation is still there. That hope is still there because it rises to be with Christ in heaven. And that hope's still there when you get to heaven, and it will be there forever. And when you find out, or when you get to heaven, you will find out that your hope was incalculably better than you ever thought. You couldn't imagine what it's going to be like. So it's an invitation that you would think, who can possibly refuse this? Now, is God shaken because there are some who do refuse? Not at all. He will have guests at his feast. Jesus said, and I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then we read about this scene in heaven, actually, which is written in in Revelation chapter 5. John sees into heaven, and you know what he saw? And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so there will be a great celebration. God has prepared it, and his chosen people will come. Here it says the bad and the good will come. The bad, that means the worst of sinners Those who have done the most terrible things that you can ever imagine, they can be saved. And then it says the good will come. Well, you and I know there's nobody that's good. The Bible says that. What does he mean, the good will come? He means those that are good in their own eyes. Those that are self-righteous. Those who say, well, I'm good enough to get into heaven on my own. Even their hearts can be changed. God can change that. And then in salvation, God gives them everything that they need to attend his feast. 
Now that brings us to the end of the parable. Fourthly is the scandalous expulsion. Verse 11, And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the feast is ready, the day has come, and now the guests are gathered, and the celebration is ready to begin. So all the guests are waiting for the king to enter. And he would be the last one to come in, because that makes the entrance all that much more dramatic. So the invitations have been sent out. A general call has gone out to them. It's been extended. But when the king comes in, he spots something that is out of order. Now, in those days, it was a custom for the king to supply the garments that were to be worn at the wedding feast. Now, sometimes if you go into a fancy restaurant, they tell you that, well, you can't come in here unless you have a coat and a tie. And so what they do, if you don't have that, is they send you to the coat room and they give you a coat and tie to put on so you can eat dinner there. And, you know, we used to do that here in our church, that uh, uh, when you, if you came to usher and you didn't have your coat and your tie, well, we could send you to a place where we've got a coat for you, and we've got a tie for you, and we're going to make you presentable to do the Lord's work today. Well, that's what we have here. The king would supply the clothes for the guest at the wedding. But he looks over these guests, and there's someone who sticks out like a sore thumb. He didn't have on the proper clothing. The Bible says it was the wrong garment. And what was wrong with it? Well, this, this is why we study things like this and we try to dig out what's in the parables because here is the real heart of what salvation is all about. The reason that you can't go to heaven the way that you are is because you have on the wrong garment. You're wearing the wrong kind of clothes. What you must be clothed with is the garment that the king gives you. You have to be clothed with the garment of righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's the real heart of salvation. Now, what is that garment? Well, the Bible actually tells us what the garment is. If you, if you read Isaiah 61, verse 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom, decketh himself with ornaments as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. So what is that garment? It's the garment of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what God does. In salvation, he clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. Now, you see, you don't have anything good in you when it comes to goodness, when it comes to righteousness and doing what is right. You're naked. Or at the very best, what you wear is tattered clothing, holes that are filthy and disgusting. Now, this man had received the invitation, and he thought that he could come without the right garments. He looked at what he was wearing, and he said, well, this is good enough. And you know what that represents? It represents the person who thinks that he can get to heaven by his own effort. This is the person who is the do-gooder. It's the person who wants to keep sacraments and things like that in order to get to heaven. He thinks that he's qualified because he does his best, and he tries so hard. 
But God looks at that garment and it's full of holes. It's moth-eaten. It's stained. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. And whenever you put that garment that you're wearing up next to Christ, the difference between the two becomes glaringly apparent. So apparent that this man who was at the feast had nothing to say when he was questioned by the king. He came without the robe of righteousness of Christ. And that robe, the proper robe, is the one that we receive by faith. Now notice something about this. None of the other guests recognized that the man was not dressed properly. When he came into the feast, there was no one who checked him at the door and said, Hey, friend, I see that you're not wearing the right thing. You don't have on the proper garment. And you know why that that wasn't done? It's because the robe of righteousness that Christ gives is not something that is outward. It's inward. You can't actually see this. Now, I know there are a lot of people who try to clean up the outside and they try to do all kinds of good things and they want to appear like they are really Christians, but there is no robe of righteousness on the inside. We can't see that. And that's why there are people who come to church and they, and they look like they're good. It looks like they're doing right. They sing the songs. They pray the prayers. They look like everybody else. They're not too fidgety when the sermon's being preached. And some of them might even stay awake. But they don't have the right righteousness. They're, they're, they're pretenders. But God knows who they are. God sees the heart. And when they appear before the king, he'll see right through them. Now, do you think that's a very serious thing? You know, we have to talk to people in this congregation today who say that they're Christians. But what if you have lived the Christian life for years and yet you're just pretending? That you never really had a relationship with Jesus Christ. You, you just come and you put on the show and, and you do what you think you need to do, but you really don't have a relationship with Christ. Now what, what if you have never been clothed with His righteousness? Can that happen? Is it possible for people to come to church and do all the things that we do and go through all the motions of it and look holy and righteous and pious and not actually be saved people? Oh yes, it's possible. This is why Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Many of you will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And he says, Then will I profess unto you, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. These things happen. It will happen. It can happen. And that's what Jesus warns about in the parable. No one escapes the all-seeing eye of God. He knows your heart. And so you'd better be sure that you know what you think that you know. You need to know Christ as Savior. Now the next question is, what happens to this person? Well, the king sees him, and he says, what are you doing here? Why did you refuse the garments that I sent? Why did you try to come in your own clothing? And what happens? He is cast out of the brightness of the light, of the celebration of the king. He's cast out, he's bound up, and thrown out into the outer darkness where it says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't have to be, I don't have to be a Bible scholar to decipher that one. This is an obvious reference to hell. Lots of people don't believe in hell, but Jesus believed in it. He created it. 
And Jesus used the same language before. Going back to that 13th chapter in Matthew, he said, So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, we can't miss that. There is a hell and people will go there. If they refuse the garments of salvation, the righteousness of Christ, and they try to come without that robe, then they will go to hell. Now notice the response to the king's question. He says, how did you get in here? And what is the man's response? There is no response. He was speechless. And when you stand before God, and he brings out his holy law by which all will be judged, Here's the response of the guilty. Psalm 63, But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Well, this is an important question. Does your life speak lies? When you stand before God, would your mouth be shut? When you come before him and you don't have this robe of righteousness, you have nothing to plead. You have nothing, no basis on which to say, God, I should go into heaven. Uh, God, I've got this righteousness. I've got these good things that I've done. And God says, no, no, you're not going to talk to me about that. There's no, you can't talk about that. And what the judge will do is to cast you into outer darkness. Folks, this is the eternity of the invitation. You accept it and you live forever. And if you refuse it, you die forever. And so the question is, which will it be? Jesus says in verse 14, For many are called and few are chosen. Now, that particular verse, that verse is a paradox that we're never going to be able to resolve in this life. Jesus very clearly taught the doctrine of election. Now, the word chosen here is actually the word elect, for many are called and few are elect. So there's a general call that goes out to all, but there are few that are God's elect. God has chosen few for salvation. Now, I'm sorry, but that's a doctrine that can't be denied. I mean, that's all throughout the Scriptures. You start in Genesis, and you go all the way to Revelation. It's there. It actually starts out before the foundation of the world, and you'll find that out in John chapter 17. And it goes on beyond the end of the world. So you can't deny the doctrine. Uh, it's here in the Bible. You can't miss it. But there is also another doctrine that we call human responsibility. The invitation is sent, and you are required to respond. You are required to accept the invitation, and if you don't, then you don't have anybody to blame but you. And so you make a decision for heaven or hell. You say, well, how do you reconcile those two doctrines? Well, Jesus didn't think they needed to be reconciled because he gave no explanation. He just taught both things in one passage. So what I'm supposed to tell you today is that you need to understand an invitation has been given to you, and you hold it here in your hand... And the question is, what are you going to do with it? And so you have a decision to make about the invitation. And the question is, is it the right one? Will you make the right decision? Is it feast or is it famine? Is it heaven or, it, or is it hell? That's the difference in how you answer it. 
And then there are some of you that say, well, I'm all right with this. I'm okay with that because I've already responded to this. And you say, well, I'm saved. Are you sure? Are you dressed in the robes of Christ's righteousness? And will he see that when you stand before God? And when the time comes, he's going to search the heart. He knows it all. He'll see if you have on the wedding garment. Have you put it on by faith in Jesus Christ? Or what you're doing, are you just pretending? God knows this. Now eternity hangs in the balance here. Make sure that you know what you think that you know. In Christ, there is a feast. And without him, the Bible says, there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth. It is a gracious invitation. God says, accept it and live. And so which will it be? When he calls, will you come? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word today. A gracious invitation is extended to every person who sits in this room today. And now it's incumbent upon us to examine our hearts and to know whether we have responded properly to that invitation. Lord, this is not something that we cast aside and say these things don't matter. There's nothing more important than the eternal soul. Nothing more important than where we're going to spend all of eternity. Even the scripture says that this life is as a vapor that quickly vanishes away. Here today, gone tomorrow, we often say. And how true it is with the soul. No one knows when they will die. Just a little while ago, we gave a a, a prayer request for a man, uh, with uh, a young man with the flu. Something that we think, well, it's not that serious, is it? Yes, we, we don't know when we're going to die. And so we need to receive the invitation now and to act upon that invitation. And Lord, we just ask that people will come in faith, believing in you, and receive the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Speak to some heart today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.